0: You're listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo.
1: Hey, everybody, welcome back. I'm glad you're here. I hope you're glad you're here. I know I'm glad I'm here because I'm glad to be anywhere on some level. I mean, it's just the miracle of human consciousness is something I am aware of, but You know, and I'll cut right to the chase here. I'm looking forward to being in Los Angeles, another place that is not here but is there. And I'm going to be there on March the 5th at USC because they're having a screening that night of the documentary, John Wright's documentary about me and my dad leaving my father's faith. And then two days later in Beverly Hills, they're having another screening. Now, I, I don't know if the one at USC is sold out or if it's just for students. I don't know how that one works. I know the one in Beverly Hills is wide open and you can find out about it at Campolafilm.com, which is the John Wright and, and Matt Dean, the producers of the film. That's, that's the website they set up for it. You can find out about all, all the screenings all over the country that are happening. Not like there are hundreds of them, but it's like four. Um, wow, do you hear that siren? every time I try to do a podcast that hiring happens and I'm not going to stop like if you heard it deal with it there's bad things happening in the world all the time um but yeah I'm going to be in California see my kids hang out with some old friends I you know if you come to the screening I would love to see you there I mean I feel like I'm being like a real podcaster like telling people where I'm going to be ahead of time and hope and inviting them to come out and see me um so I'm, I'm excited about it it'll be it'll be a cool thing um and, you know, at some point, I, I really just want to, like, sort of set up. Uh, it would be so fun to go to a place where there were a lot of podcast listeners and just have a get together. Maybe, maybe record an episode with everybody in the room. Um, we'll get there. But in the meantime, I'm going to be in California March 5th, March 7th. If you're around, come see me. Great. Now... I did something the last episode that people liked uh, or maybe it was a couple episodes ago when I, I recommended something. It was a film called Lucky that I thought was really humanizing and people wrote to me and said, I, I went and watched that movie. I, I rented it on iTunes or something and it was really, they, they were like, they were like, that was cool. So I'm going to make another recommendation. This time it's not a uh, movie. It's a podcast episode um, that I listened to a few years ago. Um, that, that was kind of like the audio version of LSD to me in the sense of people often talk about using these psychedelic drugs and the way it kind of connects them with the oneness of things and it makes them feel um, a part of something much bigger than themselves. And I haven't gotten up the gumption to use psychedelics yet. Like I, I think it makes sense for somebody like me at some point in their life. Um, and I mean, I'm just being held back by fear, if I'm honest. I just haven't figured out how to make sense of it because the research is pretty compelling on this thing and I know there are safe ways to do it. So I don't know. I don't want to get off on that tangent. But what I will tell you is, is that this podcast was like the audio version of LSD because it made me feel so much wonder and so much connection. It's the, The podcast is called Radiolab and this episode was called From Tree to Shining Tree. And it was all, it's its a hokey title for the podcast, but it was a science podcast about this forest floor and the way in which the roots and the worms and the soil and the animals all sort of work together to make a forest, not so much a collection of individual living things, but one kind of organism, macro organism together. And you know I, I for weeks after I listened to that episode, I was just sort of euphoric um at, at sort of understanding the world around me on a level that I had never understood it before, and so I just you know i'm I'm Radio lab's a good podcast they have a lot of good episodes i i like but I can't recommend this episode highly enough um yeah i I think it'll turn at least some of you I think it'll really turn you on to A way of looking at things that that could be really humanizing, which is the point after all. All right, enough of that. I'm going to cut right to the chase here. Um, What I got for you is a conversation between me and my friend Jennifer Wright Berryman, who is a um, professor here at the University of Cincinnati. She's a social work professor. Um, But she's also kind of a, a... she she's I, I get a sort of a suicidologist she's an expert on suicide and she's a lead researcher on this really cool project that we'll end up talking about that's a, a suicide prevention project um but she's just a just a dear person too and and i just really liked this conversation and so um yeah i i, I ended up walking away kind of both troubled inspired um energized. So yeah, I won't tell you what you'll feel. You check it out. I hope you dig it. Here we go. Me and Jennifer Wright men talking. You're so on time.
0: I am on time always. Is that it's, it's just, how did you get that way? Um, my parents are both timely people. It's genetics for sure. I was, I was born with a, a clock that requires my promptness
1: that's so interesting. I have a really amazing clock in my head in the sense of if at any given time of the day, if you say to me, what time do you think it is? I'm usually within five minutes, mm-hmm. even when I wake up.
0: Well, you were probably a Boy Scout when you were young. No, no, no. you no. can look at the sky and be like... I, no, I have
1: not. I just, I, like, I have that. But, but what's interesting is it doesn't cost me to be on time for anything. It oh. just means that I know exactly how late I am. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's just about
0: which doesn't change your behavior apparently.
1: And that's which is <laughs> I know I'm, I'm not a learner. It's very sad. Um, yeah. Okay. So I'm thinking about the last conversation, the last time I saw you. Yeah. And we're talking about suicide. Yes. Which is kind of your thing.
0: That's um, yes, unfortunately.
1: And you know, like you didn't start out like when you went to like I mean, you went to college where F- several times where.
0: Uh, undergrad at Purdue graduate school both master's and PhD at Indiana University in Bloomington uh, actually the school of social work is at Indianapolis campus oh okay yeah so okay. IUPUI is yeah. It's located. yeah yeah,
1: yeah. Um, so when you were going to those schools you weren't thinking I'm preparing for a career in which I will address the problem of suicide in the world
0: I think not definitely not in undergrad but in graduate school I was already a mental health clinician so by nature working in mental health you work with people who have suicidal thoughts people who attempt when they're working with you or people that you're trying to save from you know taking their own lives so I didn't focus solely on the topic of suicide till much later. But throughout my entire mental health career, I've probably worked with hundreds of people who have had suicidal thoughts. And I did work in an emergency room for numerous years responding to mental health crises, which would often involve suicide attempts or suicidal thinking.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's funny when you say that, Like, I've worked with hundreds of people who have had suicidal thoughts. I'm thinking like, well, we probably all have. We just didn't know it. Like oh, in your case, absolutely. you knew they were having suicidal yeah, thoughts. Yeah, they reported but, them. But, but like, you know, the guy working at Walmart—he's working with people who have suicidal thoughts. Mm-hmm. Like, what percentage of people do you think,
0: at some point in their life, yeah. have had a su- Oh goodness, um, I would say half of us. Really? I would say half of us at some point, the thought crossed our minds that it would be just simpler to. to end things completely than it would be to carry on yeah so and 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 I think a lot of people um, are so uh, embarrassed or ashamed of having thought that because they associate it with weakness that they're unwilling to even disclose so that's one of the things that I work on as well is trying to reduce that stigma
1: it's funny like we didn't talk about this last time but like Have you ever had suicidal Mm -hmm. thoughts?
0: Yeah, yeah. I, in fact, I can. I still. It's the worst scenes of our life are the ones that we remember the most and the most color for whatever reason. I I don't know. Um, And so I was. uh, I think it was a combination of postpartum depression and lack of real social support. But I was. Probably in my very early thirties, thirty-one, I think, because it was after the birth of my son, and I was very—he was a—he was not a well baby. He was chronically ill, and I had to stay home a lot, and—and um, and it was one of those things where I was just empty yeah. emotionally. I had given and given and given. I'd given as a new mother. I had given as a mother of my toddler as well, and I had just—you know—I think my grandfather had just died. My dad was already passed away, so my mom was was struggling you know and i and i felt like i was surrounded by people who needed things and i was constantly giving i was empty and there was nothing left for me and nobody was really um i, I didn't know how to fill my tank up you know emotionally and so i just thought man i i feel like nothing maybe i'm nothing and i was cutting vegetables actually with a knife you
1: actually remember the moment i remember
0: the moment like yeah i was sitting there slicing up vegetables for dinner and this this pervasive thought of using the knife on myself not to cut myself but to just to just nick it. the jugular yeah, yeah absolutely i thought gosh what relief what incredible relief that would be to not feel this way for another second and i think it was at that moment that i really truly understood what it meant To be suicidal because people talk about depression they talk about mental you know disorders and they talk about all but really at the end of the day when people want to die they want some really horrible level of despair sense of despair feeling to just end and what great relief it would be so if you really want to understand why someone wants to die at their by their own hand it's it's because they want that Horrible, excruciating emotional state to end. It's really not, but the rest of it's very complicated.
1: <laughs> yeah, cause, so so yeah. So you, I mean, you get it. it's funny. Like I, I was thinking as you were talking, like because I want to say, oh, I've I have too. Like you know, because I want to be that empathetic person sure. that like you know, like people are like he's so authentic, he's open, <laughs> um, and I'm going like. I've never been there. I mean, I've been in pain. Yeah. But it it's, and I don't know, you know, like, in some ways, you know, maybe that's a weakness. Um, I, I mean, it definitely means that when I talk to people, I, I mean, I've read a lot about suicide. Mm-hmm. I've talked to lots of people who were in that space mm-hmm. and trying, you know. But whereas there are other things where I can sort of go like, I know what you're, I know, I know where you're at, man. I've been there. Yeah, I got, this was when I got. I, I, I don't have. Yeah. So okay. So you're 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 you're. Uh, are you a PhD?
0: I am. Look I do have a, I look do have I have a PhD. Yeah. So you so you get through.
1: You're a PhD <laughs> in mm-hmm. social work. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And you're working with a lot of mental health issues. Yes. And then, but including
0: like, my own. <laughs> right. But
1: you're not what somebody would call a suicide expert or a suicidologist or no, something. No,
0: no, not at that point. No, it wasn't until a few years later that I, or a couple years later, that I, we lost some teenagers in where in my area, uh, geographically, in southern Indiana where I live and they were all my daughter's age and our I was going to say cuz like yeah. we lose
1: teenagers all the time to suicide and it doesn't drive ever all of us into that field but like they were your daughter's age
0: they were my daughter's age and my daughter was on the dance squad with one of them and my daughter's grief was inconsolable she just you know and and she, this this girl was the second of the third two weeks later we lost a boy they both hung themselves and so my small community was just completely Befuddled, they just had no idea what was going on, and so my daughter just gave me this call to action. You know, she's like, "I don't want to lose any more friends. I want to, I want to, I want to do something about this." So that started the journey where I specifically zeroed in. That was about four years ago, where I specifically zeroed in on on studying this mystery of suicide And largely, it's still mysterious. You know, we have a lot of research, but well,
1: this is the weird thing: is that you know, we always talk about like it's a taboo subject and mm-hmm. like. I've got tons of suicide in my family background. Mm-hmm. Like lots of people I'm close to, yeah. um, either a parent has, or a grandparent, or mm-hmm. like it's, it's you know, my daughter recently had a close friend.
0: Yeah.
1: And um, But what's interesting about it is, is that, you know, people don't talk, like there is this taboo thing in terms of talking about it, but it sounds like there's almost like a taboo, like it's not studied.
0: It it like is. Like I I'm well, trying to like what's the right, great what's the book
1: I need to read?
0: Right, right. No, the one I'm gonna write. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I well, it is studied. It uh, it's actually studied um, quite widely, but because it's such a complicated issue, it's the, all the research hasn't led us to one specific uh, answer. There's just so many different variables that are associated with suicide. You know, teen suicide is different from adult suicide, which is different from cultural implications of suicide, which is different from people with mental disorders versus people who do not have them. Um, I my particular yeah. What's your yeah. What's your angle? So my angle is emotional pain. So what the research tells us is that no matter what the risk factors or warning signs, the the variable that differentiates people who have risk versus people who don't have risk. In, in terms of who's suicidal and who's not. So, like if you have a group of people who are depressed, some of them are suicidal and some of them are not, right? So, you, you probably know tons of people who have depression, but they don't have suicidal thinking, or at least you don't know that they do, but you, you may be clear that some of them do not. The difference between those groups uh, is this variable of emotional pain, and emotional pain is this place of, of genuine despair. No, you're good. <laughs> It's it's this place where it's it's empty and it's and it's dark. It's excruciating. It's this excruciating pain that you feel is unremittent. Is
1: it? Do you feel like it's almost like like my dad has this incredibly high threshold of pain, physical pain, uh-huh. and I don't. Right. So like if I even think something's gonna fall in my hand, I go like ah, nah. and I feel pain. And, and and boy, like if there's a a, a, a pebble in my shoe. Yeah. Whereas my dad could literally break his arm and he would just keep going.
0: Yeah, that makes him at higher risk.
1: Oh, because I thought you were going to say since high emotional oh, no. pain.
0: No, actually, um, people. So
1: Because I was wondering, like, do people right. have different thresholds of they, emotional pain? They,
0: they do. Well, they do, but it's it's less about threshold and more about what I would call our emotional immune system, right? So resilience and. And, and so with, with physical pain, high thresholds for physical pain make someone more capable of being lethal to themselves because they're not afraid of the pain. But someone with a high threshold for emotional pain, that's, you know, that's derivative of, of probably having some emotional coping skills growing up, right? So your dad grew up differently than you, right? So you, you might be more prepared to handle emotional pain if you have a lower threshold because you avoid you might avoid situations that you know would cause you emotional pain where someone else might dive right in
1: yeah it's, it's so weird because I, I i think like i i feel like i have a higher threshold of emotional like i don't know if it's you have pain. a
0: higher emotional resilience yeah yeah
1: because like i don't like like i can be with somebody who's really hurting yeah okay they're really in pain and mm-hmm. i'm like I'm dealing with this problem. Like we're figuring out what to do. Like right. I'm the guy in the hospital, but like then I like I leave them because I have to go, you know, to get something. And like I go to the McDonald's and I sit down and I'm like have a hamburger and I'm fine. Like I read the newspaper. Like yeah. I don't carry that pain. Yeah,
0: that's and then, that's and then different. When I, though. And then when I
1: walk back in the hospital, so like I don't that pain doesn't.
0: It doesn't penetrate you. You don't absorb it. You you have you 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 have you probably have good self care techniques so that you're emotionally resilient and you don't have compassion fatigue at the same level as other people who care for other hearts. Right. So it just makes you someone that in my world we love because you can care for hearts and care for hearts and care for hearts and, you're the energizer bunny of heart caring and you can just keep on going and you don't suffer from extreme emotional fatigue or compassion fatigue. But
1: like I'm, I'm But tr- if
0: you but if But you, I'm taking
1: it over to like my dad's threshold of right. physical pain and my threshold of physical pain. Because I have a low threshold of physical pain, you're right. I avoid painful like right. but the other thing is is that like if I get hurt, I'm like, Help everybody like somebody <laughs> come. Like like I don't suffer quietly yeah I call I I call upon the the, everyone to help me like I can't stand to be in pain yeah
0: yeah and
1: so whereas my dad like I always thought like his high threshold of pain meant that he didn't develop as many habits as I do of reaching out for help so like I guess here's the thing like what I'm trying to figure out is I, I I'm trying to find a connection where there isn't one like you're like If somebody has a high threshold of physical pain Mm -hmm. they're actually more at risk because they can contemplate hurting themselves yes and they're like i can handle the pain of killing myself if i can get to the relief on the other side whereas a guy like me honest and this is true you know like if to the degree that i've ever thought about like jumping off a building i go like i don't think about the relief I think about the pain of hitting.
0: Absolutely, yes. That makes you that makes you much less less likely to do anything. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. That that so that could explain in some ways the reason why you've never had that thought. Yeah, because just just even the notion that you might be in some sort of physical pain
1: is just unconscionable for me. Yeah, yeah. and it really is. Like that's the weird thing. No, you're good. You're good. Yeah, I'm just trying to get you beautiful.
0: Well, and that's why one of the one of the most uh, salient risk factors in suicide and suicide death is this capability of le- of inflicting a lethal mean upon oneself. And so, young people, you've probably heard of this. You know, people who self injure as a means for coping with their f- emotional pain. Right. And so, people who self injure at some point, the the self injury tends to escalate because they need they don't feel it quite as acutely as they used to when they started f- physically injuring themselves. So they injure themselves. You know, maybe the cuts are a little deeper or the burns are a little bit more. So in a outrageous. sense, they're working their way up they're to it. They're working way So once they become so desperate to end the pain and the, the coping through self-injury isn't working anymore, then the, the it really settles in that suicide might be an option for them. And then... They're not afraid of the pain because pain it, is no longer yeah. an issue, and we lose a lot of our veterans for the same reason. So our veterans are, are are people who have been conditioned at some point in their careers to endure pain, to endure pain, or the possibility or the potential for pain, and and to do that in service to their country. And violence is normal. And to violence them. is very normalized, and so it's you know it's something where death is genuinely just. Another yeah. day of
1: life, right? I, I I don't know if you've seen this movie yet, the Three Billboards movie.
0: Not yet, but it's on my radar. Oh my gosh, <laughs> it's
1: it's 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 a great movie. It's a horrible movie.
0: Uh, that's um, Meryl Streep. No, 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 no. no it's, it's Woody
1: Harrelson and um, oh, oh, Francis McDormand.
0: Francis McDormand. Yeah,
1: and it's it's a movie about violence.
0: Yeah, like
1: everybody's violent in it.
0: Yeah,
1: and one of the central characters commits suicide.
0: Okay,
1: and it's a dangerous movie because it's one of those movies where. You love this guy, yeah, and the way he commits suicide, you understand. Like it, it inter- but one of the things is, is that this is a guy who's lived a violent life, yeah, and so the idea of shooting himself in the head, yeah, doesn't freak him out, no, in the way, right, because he's been around guns, yeah, he's probably you know, oh yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, um, and and firearms are well over fifty, and and typically around sixty percent, depending on the state. Uh, meaning state in the United States um, for, for this is how p- people mostly men who kill themselves kill themselves with firearms yeah
1: but that's the physical pain side of things that where there's a factor but then like yeah. where, where you where, where I get the impression where you're at right is it's emotional pain that gets somebody to the place where they want relief that's correct and you're and so am I, am I right in thinking that like over the last four years you've been trying to figure out how do we relieve people's emotional pain?
0: I have been yes, I've spent a lot of time researching that idea. I'm building, you know, my research for a book because I feel very and I just did a TED talk a week ago. Oh yeah, how did L- that go? A little, little over a week oh. ago, it went really well. But it's all it's all couched in this idea that as a community um, we can. We have created this culture of shame in terms of emotional expression, and we're the ones who have to undo it. So I, I have uh, some ideas about how we can do that, and that's what my TED talk was about, and that's what my book will be about.
1: And so, okay, so, so <laughs> we were joking about the TED talk, like they make you practice eighty-seven thousand times. and mem- I, you, you memorized the whole talk.
0: I did. I put a, I put a good hundred hours into it. It was. It went through twenty twenty-five revisions, and then I, I practiced it. Probably two to three hundred times. but and there were o- <laughs>
1: and there were other people that like you practice it in front of some people and I got feedback. I and- did.
0: I, I, I practiced it in front of um, a group of of mental health experts and community-based practitioners so that they could say, oh, no way like that's totally unrealistic so
1: some of it was the content you were checking out i was checking then, out the delivery content, but too. also
0: but also the delivery yeah and i got i got some good feedback so i felt pretty good about it and then i went from being really sort of anxious about it to being um excited ready to go to give the talk yeah yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: that's amazing like i like i i I, <laughs> I i think a lot about communicating yeah. stuff and yeah. and so but 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 and so the idea of like working that hard on a short piece of communication—I know,
0: twelve minutes, thirty seconds. No, it <laughs> totally
1: appeals to me. I, I like that's that's I'm like that's so exciting. You should
0: give a TED talk for um, sure. Yeah, I you, wish you've got so many wonderful things. You can- I I think I, I
1: do. The problem is like if if you ever listen to this podcast, you would know that like I can't ever say anything in less than an hour, so it doesn't really work. <laughs> but so so, but I feel like when you were talking about when you talk about. Reducing emotional pain, mm-hmm. or managing, or channeling emotional mm-hmm, pain mm-hmm. in all these different ways, mm-hmm. I sort of like. Oh, that's my business too. Like, yeah. that's what community building is about. Like, one of the reasons people come together is because they want to process their pain in a safe space with nice people. Right. I mean, we had a, just last night at dinner. You yeah, know, the Sunday dinner I thing. It, yeah. yeah. No, but this is a great <laughs> thing. And this one family came, and and I got a note from her. On her way home and she said you know we had just been to visit my family and we hadn't gotten much understanding mm-hmm. and i didn't want to come to dinner last night because i didn't have it in me but my you know we decided all right we said we would be there we will be there yeah. and she's like but those people really listened mm-hmm. and those people were really sensitive to me and it yeah. was i walked out feeling great and i yeah. thought that's all that's, right, it that's, works. That's healing. That's you know, right. Like, that's right. like you, you create a space. You create a group of people. You create a kind of conversation where mm-hmm. people can be vulnerable, and you're like, okay, this is really healthy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so, like, what have you learned about addressing other people's emotional pain? Like, if I'm, right. if I'm, if I'm, tr- if I want to, like, re- if I want to diminish the risk. Mm-hmm of the teenager in my life or right. of the college student in my life. What yeah. what do I do?
0: Well, I think, first of all, I think it's never too late, but, but one of the things that I, in my community action approach that I challenge people to do is to prepare our kids for the eventuality of emotional pain. So, um... You know, we have such a community conversation around bullying, but yet, as parents, we do very, or teachers, or coaches, or, or, or pediatricians, we do very little to prepare children to go into the world and get their feelings hurt. We simply... Yeah, we're like, we have to
1: protect them from bullies. That's right. Stop the bullying. Yeah. It's yeah. funny. I was just reading that Jordan Peterson book, The 12 Rules which, for Life. Oh, yes, yes. Which I don't know what I think about it yet. That's
0: another podcast. We could talk about him, but... It, I, yeah, no, he's...
1: A, he's. I mean, he is a strange and wonderful phenomenon. Like, I,
0: that's those are. That's a good way to describe it. There are good...
1: There, like, like 75% of the stuff he says, like, like, man, that is just straight common sense. And then yeah. the 25%, I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I disagree with you completely. But one of the things that he talks about is... That bullies are important in in the world. Like he's not like promoting bullying, but what he's saying is is that our job as parents is not to protect our kid from all the negative things that are gonna happen, but to prepare them yes, to cope with them.
0: That's right, that's right. I, I We do a great job of preparing our kids to go get physically hurt on the playground or wherever they go, you know. And we teach them what requires a Band-Aid and what requires some other, you know, telling someone because, you know, your whole joint is swollen or something. But we don't do that with emotional emotional injuries. No, we, you know, we don't prepare kids for an emotional injury. And and then what happens is those compound into like a, a heart stress fracture, if you will, or a complete heartbreak. And then all of a sudden we're shocked that we're just now finding out about it because we haven't created a culture in our homes or in our schools or in our workplaces where people feel like it's just as normal to report an emotional injury or to talk about it out loud as it is a physical injury we just don't have that culture and that's for me that is a the first step and such a huge key to undoing this culture of shame we've created for ourselves is just that's how we normalize it
1: now when you say culture of shame you mean like if you get your feelings hurt, you're weak.
0: That and if you report it and talk about it, you're a tattletale. You're a tattletale. That's right. That that it's that it's, you know. I even remember being told not everything needs to be you know, Jennifer, you were, you know, okay, so some girls were calling you ugly on the bus. So that boy, Sean, in your gym class, and yeah, I'm not using. Right. You know, yeah, there was it. a boy, there Sean. There was a boy named we Sean. We all, yeah, yeah, we all remember every <laughs> one right. of those. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Might Freeze,
1: so, wherever you are out there.
0: Yeah. And so instead of, in, instead of me going to my girlfriends and saying, gosh, Sean really hurt my feelings, I probably said some really nasty things about him, which is simply creating a, a, a culture of, you know I'm ashamed by what so I'm going to turn around and be mean you know and so we don't we don't accept the fact that it's just a very normal part of life to well, you get
1: know and, and it's funny like in in a marriage or in a, in a close relationship mm-hmm. one of the things that we you know if you go to like counseling and they teach you stuff they teach you to use I statements yes like instead of saying like you hurt me yeah. say like I felt hurt or like you know like yeah. you did and I sort of feel like when it comes to dealing with the bully or the Mm -hmm. person on the playground or whatever it would probably be a healthy thing to say to a kid like you don't have to tattle on him right but you can still report like i got my feelings hurt or that hurt me
0: yeah well and it's it's that's the way do you remember your podcast me asking you if you remember one of your own (laughs) podcasts about the the guy in los angeles who does the community circles Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, Jared, okay. Jared. Okay, so that was probably my favorite podcast of yours. And and and, and, and that is a, that's an old Aboriginal sort of tribal process where it, it kind of started in New Zealand and Australia where when someone commits a crime a- against the tribe, the tribe circles this person and says, okay, you did something wrong. You hurt your tribe, and now it's time to pay your penance, which could be a variety of different things. But basically, instead of you know the 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 local police coming and whisking you away and saying you commit the tribe surrounds this person and we we use that in our justice there's a restorative justice model and there's a lot of models that are very you know akin to that you know community circle type of and and I believe that the strength of you know the community so what if you know Sean hurt my feelings and a couple of my girlfriends and I sat down next to Sean and said hey Sean you know, um, that just really hurt my feelings, and I was telling my girlfriends about it, and I thought maybe I'd just come and sit next to you and ask you why you said that to me, you know. And, you know, I think kids could be brave enough to do that, but they'd, they'd have to be someone who would have to teach them. You know, we have to – I agree. Boy, you know, you
1: just reminded me of this experience I had. <laughs> like, this will blow your mind. When I was in first grade, yeah, my first grade teacher was an older woman, kind of old school, and – a kid in our class misbehaved, and she grabbed him by the hair. Mm-hmm. And I had never seen anything like that. Mm-hmm. My parents just didn't do stuff like that. She grabbed him by the hair, and she yelled at him. And he took it. Yeah. But I was freaked out. Yeah. And I came home, mm-hmm. and I told my, my, my parents about it. And my dad said, well, you should talk to her.
0: <laughs> to the teacher.
1: And I was like, like... I'm in first grade. Like, there's no way I'm going to confront this angry, this, to my mind, horrible teacher. Yes. And I said, Dad, no, you, I, I like I told you, you talked to her. Right. And he said, I wasn't there. And I, this is like, it's funny, like, my dad was brilliant in this yeah, moment. Yeah. I always remember this. Yeah. He said, he said, I wasn't there, so I can't. But he said, if you want, I will go with you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I will sit, I, I will, I will be there. Yeah. And we did. Yeah. We went in. Wow. Before school.
0: Wow. And we sat
1: down, and I and and and, and I said, Miss Miss Hutchinson, um, the way you treated Larry yesterday, it really upset me, and I think it was wrong. Like I don't think you should pull somebody's hair like that. And she burst into tears, and she wow. said, Wow. I shouldn't have
0: what a powerful I shouldn't memory. have and I
1: won't I'm gonna apologize to him and I apologize to you and I won't do it again
0: and thus started your career of advocacy and community Oh well, and- <laughs> my god
1: can you imagine like your first great year like what and what and, and it changed yeah. she changed
0: yeah and wow. like my
1: sense of power oh yeah <laughs> like oh my gosh like I'm, I'm like I'm getting teary even remembering this yeah but it was because my dad didn't just, on the one hand, didn't say, mm-hmm. it's not your problem. Yeah. But on the other hand, didn't say, I'll take care of it. Yeah. But he, but like, I would, but he, and he didn't say, but you go do this. Because I wouldn't have, and I give people so much advice sometimes. Oh, you should go do this. You should go do this. And like, people can't do what we ask yeah. them to do. No. Yeah.
0: Well, and they don't, yeah. I but mean, if you go. If you. Yeah, and that so that one that one memory that experience prepared you for for other experiences like that.
1: I got to think it changed my life. Like oh, I, yeah. I, I, from then on, I thought of myself as an agent of change, as <laughs> yep. a person who could intervene. Yeah, um, yeah, is I, I haven't thought of that moment in a long time, and that, but when you when you said that, like, because because yeah. you think like. Are little girls really able to, or junior high kids, are they really able to sit down next to the kid and say, What you said hurt my feelings?
0: Not by themselves, I would doubt it. They would be afraid. They would be afraid.
1: And so that's part, like, that's the preparation has to happen.
0: The preparation is something that I feel like if we put it in our vocabulary as raising children, so whether it's whether you're part of the family or part of the village, when we raise kids, if we don't prepare them and check in with them about how their heart is feeling, then it doesn't become. It, it's there's no way for them to achieve some sort of normalcy and feeling hurt in their heart. It's, and and it's, sort of
1: saying to them basically like, "How you doing?" And they go like, "I'm doing great." And you go like, "You know what? That's great today, but like sometime in the yeah. next little while, some you're going to feel terrible. Somebody's going, and I mean, just like when that happens.
0: Yeah, someone's like, going to say something or do something that's going to hurt you, and I want you to come home and tell me about it so we can talk about it. And so we can... And so not be a man? We have to bolster, huh?
1: Not be a man? Be a man about yeah, it. Yeah, no. Somebody's going to say something mean to you and you yeah. be a man and punch th- him that's, in the that's mouth.
0: Just the, that's, that's the culture of shame. Yeah. The culture of shame is that we can't, we're not emotionally resilient enough to, to handle it. So we're just going to lash out physically or we're going to shove it down. Whatever we're going to do, we're simply not going to heal those emotional wounds. And, they, and then they fester. Yeah. yeah.
1: You know what's weird though? I've never seen people shamed for showing emotional weakness more than I have in the in, in the underclass black community where I grew up, you know where I've spent most of my life. Hmm. Like ghetto yeah. moms just going like, yeah. You, you, stop crying, like yeah. deal with that, like yeah. and I and when I've tried to intervene they've said to me, "Hey, in this neighborhood you got to be tough." And yeah. But there's no suicide in that world.
0: Oh, no, that's because the survival instinct is very high. So if you look in the United States and you look at the difference between the high suicide areas, regions in the country and the low suicide regions like D.C., which has some of our highest uh, black population, has the lowest suicide rate. And then the highest, you know, the highest suicide states are our western states like Utah, Montana, and those are our highest white states. And, and it's, is that like
1: what suicide is a white privilege or something? Like, what, no, what's the deal? It's,
0: no, it's because um, the, just the culture is completely different in, in, in black regions, and so you know we've got people who just want to stay. They want to stay alive, and they're born with a survival instinct because they're born, you know, into maybe you know if they're in a neighborhood that's not safe. Right. Safety's they're actually their the number one thought is how am I gonna get through the day without getting hurt or without, you know, experiencing violence. And so it's a it, it becomes
1: survival becomes a value. It
0: becomes that's right, it becomes ingrained as opposed to um, well and I and I do believe Or an expressed value. I, I believe I believe that in our very high violence, high risk black neighborhoods, those parents do a much better job, actually. Those 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 black moms are talking to their kids about how to get from home to school safely. Oh yeah, yeah, the, yeah the, but
1: but not emotional, like not they're not they're not talking about emotional no, they're Like, not. Tell me if somebody hurts your feelings. No, no, like, no, no, no. have time for that. Um,
0: um, Nikki Allen Weber's work. She is a um uh, historically a movie producer who went through anxiety and depression. She is now she's got a, and a foundation that I'm trying to remember what it's called. But she uh, lost a nephew to suicide. She herself has suffered from. Um, from like i said depression anxiety and so she she does um, a lot of work now around suicide prevention in black communities so she's from a black family that the message she was sent as a child was you know we don't talk about it and she said well because we didn't talk about it i lost my nephew and i myself have suffered and so she came out uh, about her her mental disorders and now she's just one of the biggest advocates and um does a lot of work in the area so um i i think that um we're, we're really a lot of people are talking more and more about it, and a lot of people are talking about it in relationship to culture, in relationship to um, who's at higher risk and for what reasons. All right. um, so I mean, it's 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 slowly but surely. So
1: so okay, I'm gonna jump you. Yeah. Straight over to the Hope Squad thing. Okay. Because when you told me about that, I was like, okay, this seems to me like this is a way people are talking about.
0: Yeah, it's stuff. Yeah, it's the, yeah, it's very cool stuff.
1: So like. Give me the two-minute, what is a yeah, hope, sure. what, what is this?
0: So a Hope Squad started um, in Utah uh, about 20 years ago, and it's essentially a program where we train um, students. So I say students because we have Hope Squads from the fourth grade all the way through college. We even have a corporate Hope Squad in the VA, and, and Utah's doing a Hope Squad, so we have them in various settings. We They're in Canada. Um, but and, and that's the program. I'm the lead researcher for right. the Hope Squad program. And we train... Kids to do intentional outreach to peers in distress. So we embed these kids and extensively train them in suicide prevention awareness. Um, I mean, they're already someone. embedded. They're already embedded. Because,
1: um, like, th- this is the thing. When you told me about this program, okay? Mm-hmm. Like, my when, when you said that much, I was like, oh, so they get the whole school assembly and they teach all these kids how to be. And you were like, no, no,
0: they're they are they are literally trained.
1: They're, kind of they're selected.
0: They're selected by their peers. It's a peer nomination process. So w- at one point, when, when a school wants to start a Hope Squad, they, they go to every English class or every, you know, because English is a class everyone has or math or something. And they ask the kids to list like three or four names of kids that if they were in their darkest spot and emotionally, who would they trust to tell that they were feeling that bad? And those and then what happens is the same the names of the kids they all sort of bubble to the top. It's you know, some people are afraid it's a popularity contest, but that's not when what ends up happening. No, at I all. saw a
1: picture of the kids at with this one school that were doing it and they did not look like the, the most the popular kids, kids in school. Yeah. I mean there were a couple and I thought <laughs> like, no, that they're, they're not they're the kids that people are like that's that's that, who I could talk that's to.
0: That's who I could talk to. Yeah. And so it's this really so um And that but then they, that
1: that's not it. Like, that, you get a list of people that everybody goes like, that's who I would talk to, but then-
0: But then the, the, the school counselors and the administrators look at that list and they make sure that the kids who they offer this opportunity to are kids that aren't in some other way struggling that nobody knows about. Under stress you know? yeah. on their, yeah. themselves. Yeah. And, and then of course parents have to sign off if it's a, it's a fun minor child. Everyone has to agree. So, so then they
1: go to the, the parent and yes. they say, Would it be okay for us to approach your kid about this?
0: They do, but they hold a parent meeting with a an information and training session so that parents are very well informed. They know exactly what okay. they're doing. T- because they're they're gonna be worried that their kid is going to be on the receiving end of some pretty stressful stuff. Right. But we measure burnout with our hope squad students.
1: And then too. finally you go to the kid and you say, Do you wanna Do
0: you wanna do this? Do you
1: wanna do this? Yes. Like and and, and so, so this is a select group of kids mm-hmm. that you feel like have what it takes to be empathizers. They're
0: already doing it. They're that's the do- thing, is they're the ones that are already listening to their peers who are in distress. They just don't have a title yet. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean that was my daughter. Yeah. You know, going to yeah, that's up. my daughter too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> and and now she's a marriage and family therapist. Oh, okay. Well there you um, go. <laughs> but you know, and and when she decided that she was going to go to grad school in that, mm-hmm. she sort of broke the news to everybody like i'm thinking about becoming a counselor and everybody was like yeah yeah yeah, we were thinking you might be thinking about that (laughs) and like yeah because everybody was like you know everybody goes to her i go to her yeah you know like she's she's just got that she's got it she pulls it out of people Mm -hmm. um so then these kids, and they're as little as, what's the youngest?
0: So the, we have junior hope squads in the 4th, 5th, and 6th wow. grades, yeah. But but we don't, the, with a junior hope squad, we talk about belongingness and connecting and being an unconditional friend and giving unconditional positive regard for all children, sitting next to kids who are sitting alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the hope bench out on the playground where a kid can sit if they just want to talk to someone. So there's like a Do bench. kids actually do that? Yeah, they do. If they just,
1: I if, guess at that age, they're still like you know, cause like a high school, right? It. At a high yeah. school kid, you go like, I'm not going to go sit on the hope bench. Yeah. Like they,
0: we don't have playgrounds in right. high school, but um, in high school, the the hope squad kids will go sit next to someone, you know, and that's that's part of the charge that they accept. Um, you know, because you'll see high schools who will do a uh, like a feel-good week or something where it'll happen and somebody will sit next to someone for that week. But it's not an ongoing thing. It's not a way of life. Yeah, hope squads change the culture of a school over time. You know, the more work they do, the more they're seen, the more. And they do hope week and they do all kinds of visibility things. Now, are they,
1: they recognized like… like... At a school assembly, does the Hope Squad stand up and everybody claps for them?
0: Are they, <laughs> no, are they, not really. they're not recognized. They, they wear t-shirts and buttons and things so kids know who they are. Um, and they, but they do do. Um, they may, I mean, different Hope Squads at different schools do different things right. to raise awareness. And some of them do. Um, some of them partner with organizations like Random Acts of Kindness and some other, you know, organizations that are out there doing things. Um, there's official partnership with um, QPR, which is Question, Persuade, Refer, and that's the suicide prevention curriculum that we use. And so um, with with those kids, with those kids. So so they all get trained. They are supervised. The kids are supervised by advisors that are at the schools who kind of help them with um, they meet with them and supervise them. And, and they're the ones that are Getting yeah. the referrals and you know, so forth.
1: You know, like I'm not usually a program. I don't get excited about programs like okay. with t-shirts, like you know the Dare or you know, like you know. Well, research
0: Spot. shows that Dare isn't actually that effective. Right. But, but like, I
1: just don't get excited. Like yeah. whenever there's t-shirts and buttons, I sort of go like, Wait, this is a this is a rare case for me where I'm genuinely enthusiastic. And the reason is this, is because. I don't like it when they stand up and say every kid should be a leader because I know that like, not every kid has, like there are, there's some natural skills or endowments that some people have that make them more prone to be leaders. And I don't like it when they say everyone can play an instrument or I don't like it when you say everyone can do anything.
0: Right, right.
1: You can all be whatever you want to be. That's bullshit.
0: Yeah, that, Um, (laughs) that's Stepford or something. Yeah.
1: And it's just not true.
0: (laughs) Yeah, No. And I guess. Thankfully, because then we'd all just do the same thing.
1: (laughs) But with this, I sort of think like, you know, I try to help people start these humanist communities. Yeah. And everybody can't be the leader. Right. But also, everybody can't be the one who just has the touch to go sit down next to the lonely person. And like, every community needs some people who mm-hmm. have that gift and they also need somebody who like knows how to cook for 40 people Yeah, um, and they also need somebody who's willing to like drive people to the hospital in the middle of the night like every community that's needs right. a variety of that's things that's
0: what makes communities work
1: but I feel like I feel like the idea of in some ways the, the, one of the things I love of what you're doing is is that it says to the kids who can do it you should take yourself seriously and we're going to give you some training Yeah. and we want you to do it you can be better at this than you are. Right. And you can be more supported than you are. And you can help each other. But I think it also says to some other kids, maybe this isn't your way of contributing to the community. I mean, we all need to be empathetic. But, like, don't feel bad that you're not, like, that maybe isn't your thing. Right. Because I I feel like, like, sometimes I'm with somebody who's, like, on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And – they hear all these talks about empathy and compassion, and they're like,
0: Oh, well, that leaves me out. That leaves me out. Like, there's yeah. something like, yeah. and you go like,
1: yeah, it leaves you out of that. Like, that may not be your thing, mm-hmm. but like, there's another way you can contribute yeah. to this community. Yeah. And I guess, I'm, I'm like, I always think of communities or families as like bands. Yeah. And you're like, we need a variety of instruments. Yeah. And you, yeah, you need a leader, but they're not always the best player.
0: If you only had a horn section, right, right, <laughs> that's it, yeah.
1: And so, so what I love about this is that you're you're sort of saying like the community needs some people that are particularly good at enfolding people that aren't naturally enfolded, mm-hmm. and at re- touching people that are feeling hurting. Yeah. And we're gonna we're gonna identify these people, and we're gonna we're gonna. I, I would think that they that it's also better for them to have each other.
0: Well, and that's how, that's a protective factor for them. So, you know, Hope Squad kids are, are often victims of the same stuff everybody's victims of. They get harassed or bullied or they get made fun of for being those kids who are willing to do this kind of work. And the fact that they have each other and their advisors provides them their own community in which to get... Yeah fed and to get empowered and And affirmed. And affirmed. Absolutely. So it's like this is a yeah. good thing to yeah. do.
1: Like that's cool yeah. that you do it's cool to do that.
0: Well and we've trained almost fifty thousand children across the United States and Canada in this model. And, it's, and so if you think about matriculation, if you think about a kiddo who's in the fourth grade who learns to be a junior hope squatter, and then they go to junior high and maybe they stay in a hope squad, and then they go to high school, and then they go to college, and then they are this person who's out there in the world. It's just
1: their way. It's
0: their way. And so the more we get this out there, the more we're yeah. not just changing culture of school, we're changing the culture of communities. What's, and,
1: and what's the... like. I mean, first of all, like that school where they started the Hope Squad.
0: In Provo. They had
1: had all these suicides. Mm -hmm. And then like for years they didn't have suicides. Nine years they
0: had zero. They had at least one to two every year for all the years that they could remember. And then they had zero for nine years. And then they
1: had another one. And they
0: did. They have have had some. um, And I think that just speaks to you know, the fact that we have to continually yeah. evaluate how we can do our outreach and learn from when we lose a child, we can learn more yeah. about how to save more. And so it's not to me, we never want to lose a child, but when we lose a child, let's continue to learn about how we can do outreach. and Tonight, Yeah.
1: Okay. So, so... Like, you're trying, like, in a sense, this is prevention. Like, you're trying to get at a kid before he's at the place where he's trying to figure out or she's trying to figure out what she's going to do because mm-hmm. you're trying to stop the pain. Right, right rather than just like we're
0: trying to inter- let you get yeah. in really good pain yeah.
1: and then stop you from actually pulling the trigger.
0: Right. It's it's there's there you there are so many intercept points for prevention and yeah. so we use this word prevention in a very all-encompassing way that is misleading. Yeah. There's sort of like prevention prevention which I'm interested in that and then there's just prevention of death which is this intercept point where we're simply wanting to get a kid immediate help before we think that they're going to be lethal to themselves. So yeah. so yeah, it's it's this to me is sort of in that um, mid range, if you will. So I've because that's like, what
1: they used to teach me, like as youth workers, like Yeah. If a kid says he's gonna kill himself, you ask this question and then you're right. and like I was pretty good at that and I you know you intervene sure. but like that's not that's not the best moment to like I would have it would have been better to, to get that guy a little farther upstream.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it would have. That's 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 the work I do in emotional pain. I think once we change the culture around emotional pain, then people are less prone to handle their pain through using substances, So what do you teach what do you teach
1: them? Like what do you teach the kid? Like the, the uh, So the
0: a Hope Squad, a Hope Squad kid goes through 3 years of curriculum. It's a lot. But like what lot.
1: but what's the heart of it? Like what's the main skill that you're trying to teach them? Um,
0: I think it, the main skill is this intentional outreach and, and suicide risk discernment. So it's sort of like if 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 a kiddo's feeling very sad in their hearts for some reason, that doesn't mean they're at risk to themselves. And so it's how to be a friend, and then how to be a, 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 a we don't we tell them not to keep a deadly secret. And so so many so many kids keep deadly secrets they're on the receiving end of threats and they're like, oh, that's just Jenny trying to get attention or, you know, and, and that's, that's a, that really chaps my rear end when people say, oh, they're just trying to get attention um, because there are millions of kids who don't say those things. And, and so um, we, we train Hope Squad members to never keep a deadly secret, to always give them um,
1: – When I used to say, like if, somebody's try, like, if somebody's waving a flag to get attention – Maybe they need attention. They need need
0: the right kind of attention. And I always tell people that if they are needing some emotional input and it's not that they're truly suicidal, but they're using sort of suicidal verbalizations as a way to get help, then we need to give them the right kind of help. Because if if, if there's a crying suicide and you call the police, well, that's, that's a deterrent for them to cry suicide again down there, because then they have to go through the whole, you know, rigmarole and go through the evaluation. That's really diffusing for someone who just wants someone to give them some love. Or, yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah.
1: So let me switch you one more time. Sure. Because I got an email from somebody last year, and they said, I've struggled with suicidal ideation my whole life. Mm-hmm. And as a Christian, I had a really good case against why I shouldn't do it. Yes. It's the unforgivable sin, and I will burn in hell forever.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm now a humanist.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: And they were sort of like, I don't know what to say to myself. Yeah. Like, when the pain—you know, because part of the—part of, like, especially if they've listened to me, like— you know i i'm very stoic about like you know where death is i am not where i am death is not like there's nothing really to fear in death because so many people are afraid of yeah. death yeah. and so like the goodness is is that like if you're if if you get with my like sort of warm humanist vibe like mm-hmm. you're going to be able to face death mm-hmm. with more equanimity mm-hmm. and with more hope mm-hmm. the dangerous thing is that all that stuff comes back around to bite you mm-hmm when somebody's 37 years old and they've lost their job and their wife just left them and they go like I listened to Bart and he's like death is you know nothing yeah. to be feared and right. like you know and I go no, no no that's not what I was trying to say <laughs> and so I guess my question is like what do you think about like like what's the secular argument yeah that we use
0: i I wish we had so much more, you know, maybe that's another book to write, but there's just so very little out there in the secular and humanist world about su- suicide. And um, the great thinkers are, are just don't have really well-evolved thoughts around this. But when, when, when we talk about the meaning of life for people who are feeling chronically suicidal, it's in the ability to experience a moment and to really be in that moment and people don't know how to do that and i think that's what's largely missing in a lot of people's lives who are feeling suicidal. So I, I have friends who are chronically suicidal and they're also atheist. Yeah. And so we talk about you know we talk about you know validation of feeling suicidal. Yeah. You know, we just can't sit there and talk people out of feeling suicidal. Suicide And this sounds so counterintuitive. (laughs) It's such a peaceful thought for some people who live in chronic emotional pain, right? And so if someone is, is, is sort of chronically suffering, and we're still working on a way to help alleviate that suffering, when they're feeling suicidal, we need to validate them in feeling that way. But we also need to talk with them about what currently is meaningful for them and how they experience that meaning in those in those moments as they journey through you know
1: i i I had a conversation with a guy once in which he he was in that space
0: yeah
1: and my instinct like like i had this my first thought is to go like no killing (laughs) yourself is never the answer it's never
0: the answer yeah
1: and what i i found myself saying to him was listen There might come a time where that's the best move. Yeah, I, it's not yet. Like we haven't exhausted all the options here. Like, yeah, there's there's still an opportunity to try to see like because like life is you know every creature in the world is struggling to stay alive.
0: Yeah,
1: and so like there's something intrinsically good about life. Yes, that that the even even at the end of their lives people are clawing for a few more minutes. So like like just on balance I'm thinking like. We probably ought to exhaust all the possibilities for this life to be worth the suffering you're in.
0: Yeah.
1: But like I didn't say never.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it ended up being a like, because sometimes if like he was holding that piece, that was his like trump card. That was just yeah. like get out of jail free card. Yeah. And he was like, I have a back door here. And I feel like if I would have taken away his back door, he would have just shut me out of his life. He would yeah. have, you know, fuck you. You're,
0: you're absolutely right. I mean, that's, and that's what people, people are just afraid when, when they say, no, no, don't kill, you know, don't kill yourself. You your, can never you kill can, yourself. You could never kill yourself. Because that's the same argument you're making from a secular viewpoint than, a, you know, a Christian or, you know, a, you know, it's still, that's still rooted in, you know what we need to do in that my is, cu- I can't handle it and that's right our that's culture right. can't that's handle right. it and it, we, right. we, we must that's right you know
1: it, it, it's, it's and, and there's this weird thing where I think somebody goes like listen fuck your culture fuck all of you like mm-hmm. I'm in excruciating pain mm-hmm. here and so I think it's one of those things where you sort of go like look you've got the button like I'm not gonna take the button away from you right I'm just gonna say like could we just like could you give me a minute right could you give life a minute?
0: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and of course, there, there's the chronic and then there's the acute. So if you're talking some, you know, I've got friends who chronically think about suicide without really heavy intent to do so. It is that, it's that, it's that really, I have a friend who, he's a brilliant writer and he's a journalist and he talks in, very, in great detail about how he would kill himself and he's lived in pain for a great—and he's married, and he has children, and he loves them dearly. And for all intents and purposes, you see him out mowing the lawn and doing the things that we all do, you know. But um, this this emotional pain that he lives with, um, that he, you know, even, you know, takes medication for depression and some of these other things that we would say, oh, isn't he— Right. You know, um, and he doesn't, you know, use drugs or drink or do any other thing, but this—he finds solace
1: in, in this, talking about it.
0: I have control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Over yeah. my experience. That's right. I am the master of my fate. I am the master of my fate. I have control. So it, when you're in a moment, where's the struggle leaning, right? So if the struggle's leaning toward, I'm actually going to kill myself. This is when I say to someone, of course, you know, am I in the room with them? Or am I yeah, on right, email? Or am I on the phone? It's like, where is that tipping? What? Where's that tipping point for you? You know, because the intensity of the pain is so excruciating that you feel like, just as you're in excruciating physical pain, uh, which we, in seven states, allow people to apply for for death, you know? Now, are you uh, against that? No, I'm not against yeah, that. Yeah, like, I, I'm no. like, and
1: that's the thing, like, even whether it's physical and, and sometimes even if it's emotional pain, Yeah. like, I can imagine a moment where somebody would say to me, but Bart, haven't we exhausted all the options? And I would go like, yeah, I can't think, like,
0: y- y- and they would I, go yeah. like,
1: can I go now? And I'd be like, yeah. Yeah. As far as I'm yeah. concerned, you can go now. There's
0: a good story that comes out of England and Holland where a woman was a UK resident, and she was, had been just sexually completely traumatized as a, as a little girl and just hot, treated horribly and, and just, you know, such, such, living with such trauma. Yeah. And, and she was just in such despair chronically. And she wanted to die so badly. And she, you know, and she asked her government to kill her with dignity. And they said, no way, you know. And she had heard that in Holland, you know, which, you know, in Holland, you know, everything is it's all up everything. for negotiation. Yeah, right. <laughs> she went and became a resident and applied for death there. And they granted it to her. And it's just one of those, you know, and, you know she had tried treatment she had made the care. i mean they did not just take it lightly right. i mean and she had to wait but death with dignity was such it was meaningful to her you know and her pain was so excruciating how dare we tell people that they have to live in excruciating pain yeah. you know and not even consider you know and, and i feel start-
1: like i feel like it makes you a better suicide preventer when you the understand fact that you that and The case, fact that you understand yes. it, and the fact that like somebody looks at you and goes like, when you're telling me I should try to do something, yeah it's not just your default mechanism for everybody. Like, because that's what I like, like if it's for everybody, then I don't even know if you're listening to me. Right. But if you go like, no, no, no Bart. Yeah. Sometimes I like, like, you know, sometimes I say, I understand. In your case, I really want to try something here. Yeah. I, I'm more prone to believe you.
0: Yeah, and you, you know, the other thing I think about is for, for people like this woman and other people who are in really severe emotional pain, um, you know, we, we assign people to therapists and, and you know, sometimes therapists, all they are are just companions on a journey, right? And so our postvention here in Cincinnati, um, our postvention folks uh, work for an organization called Companions on a Journey. And I, I think that's what we need to be more of when people are in pain, we're so afraid. We don't know what to do. Do they need professional help? Do they need the... People need companions in yeah, and their journey of pain. Yeah, sometimes we just try to fix it right yeah, away. Yeah, people try to fix it because they they're don't. they so uncomfortable. They don't know how to sit with their discomfort when someone else is in pain. just climb into
1: that hole with them. Yeah,
0: but we're really good at it when someone's got cancer or when someone's suffering physically. We, we're wonderful at being by a bedside. And bringing meals and delicious meals yeah, to someone's like, I can't home. do anything
1: about your cancer, but I can do something about you being alone.
0: Yes. And we got to do more of that with emotional pain. We have got to be companions. And if we start that when kids are really young and we normalize that, then kids will grow up to be adults who are okay with, I need a companion right now. Yeah. I'm in pain. <sighs> and, you know, I think of, that's one, a key to of the, my, some of this.
1: One of my best friends... Um, was struggling with insomnia a few years ago. And, uh, you know, I M- Mar- Marty's had insomnia forever. Oh, and so I suffer I know every yeah. possible <laughs> remedy and yeah. none of them work. Um, and, and so, you know, I just kept giving him advice. Yeah. And I don't think it was very helpful. Yeah. But at one point, Marty said to me, she said, you know, I think it's most helpful to me is sometimes I just need to wake you up. Yeah. And just say, like, will you talk with, like, I just don't wanna be alone in yeah. the middle of the night. Yeah. So I said to my friend, like, listen, I know you're not gonna do this very often, but I said, you know, I live five minutes away. Yeah. Like, if you wake up and you're lonely, just call me up. I go to, cause I go to sleep.
0: Me too. Like,
1: I go to sleep so easy. Me too. So, but, yeah. so, so, um, so I was like, you can wake me up. I'll come over. We'll hang for an hour. I'll yeah. go back. I'll just go right back to bed. Like it's not going to hurt me.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. He only did it once.
0: Yeah.
1: But it was like and we just talked about basketball. Mhm. But it was like it was the weird thing about it was is I don't know if it was very meaningful to him. Yeah. It might have been. Mhm. It was incredibly meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. I was like I felt really honored. Yeah. To have been invited yeah into his Yeah difficulty. Yeah. And I think that like that's that's something that we don't talk about a lot is just that sometimes even if you can't fix something, somebody goes like I have to go to this I have to go to this place that I don't want to go to and it's yeah. gonna be a bad day for me. And you're just like could I ride along?
0: Yeah. I, I would I would argue that whether it's insomnia or whether it's suicide or whether it's cancer That the pain that's incurred can be chipped away at by those small pieces. Just by showing up. Just by showing up. Yeah. And I just, I feel so strongly that this is a community health issue. I called it, you'll hear people say suicide's a public health issue. I call it a community health issue. I think that some of our our devolution has happened because of, you know, our idiosyncrasies and our individualisms and, and all these things that we, that have torn us apart and, and instead of being villages and communities and I think that we are healthier people we know from I mean we know from the science of happiness is that the most the most important thing to our health is having those connections you
1: know it's so funny I was reading that Jordan Peterson book yeah and uh, well, I think it was that book yeah and he no who was it I was reading something and anyway the guy was quoting Lou Holtz the old football coach yeah, yeah. and Lou Holtz said Never tell anybody your troubles because 80% of the people that you're talking to don't care and the other 20% are glad you're are glad you know, glad you're you're in trouble.
0: Yeah, <laughs> like Schadenfreude or something like yeah, that. And yeah, and I
1: thought like what a terrible calculation. Yeah. Like I like like if that's true. Then Lou Holtz, then you should kill yourself because the feel world bad is terrible. Yeah, like the I world is a horrible place. Him. Yeah, but he's- I thought we need to raise the number of people that go like, tell me.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and and this and, is because I do care. This has implications for other directed violence as well. So, you know, we're just coming off of this really horrible event in Florida. Yeah, you know, we're, And so, you know, this young man whose life has been parsed out in the media right. over and over and over again, um, he sought belonging in groups that may have just been terribly unhealthy for him and coming from a place of, of feeling disconnected, you know, losing family in a couple of different ways and, you know, and and probably seeking connection Wherever he can find it, you know, and then in that connection, being in a place where he learns how to use weapons and he learns how to and it just really fostered his his anger. But I know it came from a place of emotional pain. It was so just hearing his story. It's so evident that he needed community and he needed at a young age so much more. Um, Yeah. yeah. What people need so much more than they get. They just do. And it's okay.
1: So I have this one thought I'm trying to think like, okay, so you want people to, f- first of all, you want to put people out there that are willing to connect or willing to mm-hmm. receive or listen or care. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. great. Um, I mean, I, no, I don't. That's great. great. <laughs> but but I, I think like, I know a lot of caring people that people don't open up to.
0: Yeah.
1: I know a lot of people that are like, I would care. And there, there some I had a friend who once said to me, he "said Why is it that you have this backlog of people telling you their troubles, and I don't have anybody?" He said, yeah. "Nobody's ever told me their troubles." Yeah. And my flip answer was, "I ask." Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: And 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 yeah. and, and and I was like, you know, do you ask?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Do you ask people?
0: Yeah.
1: You know, like. How does that mm-hmm. feel to you? Or like, you know, he was, and he, you know, he's sort of like, I. I but what I realized was is that, and I wanna, I think that probably what characterizes the people that people talk to more, or as much as that they ask, is that they share their own emotional pain.
0: Yeah.
1: Is that I'm pretty open to say, this is bothering me, yeah. this hurt me. Mm-hmm. And I feel like when it's it's almost like that, you know, like if you, sh- I, you know, if you show me yours, I'll show you mine. Right. Like. Right. I feel like it's like emotionally, if you show me yours, I'm mm-hmm. gonna be much more prone to feel like it's okay for me to show you mine.
0: Oh, you're a safe, you're a safe person to talk to for sure. Yeah. If if, if someone observes you sharing your emotional experiences or telling a story about the time someone hurt you or that you were hurting then um, why do you think support groups tend to have such success? It's because people, it's a safe place for people to go and say, oh gosh, I, I, I'm going through that too.
1: Do support groups have success? They do. Really? They,
0: they do, they do. So if you look at, you know, it did, of course it depends on the support group, but I think especially grief and loss support groups, when you're talking about people journeying through grief and loss, yeah. um, support groups are very powerful. And if you if you were to measure someone's, you know, levels of grief before and after just one support group, you see a difference. You absolutely see a difference. And, and it's, 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 you know, it's, uh, you hear, you know, catharsis and these, you know, just, but it is a vessel for you to dump into, (laughs) you know, and people get such relief.
1: Because like when you were a social worker,
0: I still am. Okay. I'm a community-based. I think of you as a college professor, but that's okay. (laughs) I I, I'm much more a community-based worker than I am a professor. I think, yeah. But
1: you don't. But you don't. Do you still meet people one-on-one?
0: I I was never really a. You never did that stuff. My kind of social work. I mean, some many social workers are therapists. I'm. I've I've been much more of a community in the last ten years. Much more of a community worker.
1: Yeah. Reason why I ask is because it's like. I feel like there's this. Like, do you have you ever opened up to somebody, not because you really needed their support, but because you thought, like, if I share this mm. problem mm-hmm. or if I share this moment of sadness in my own life, mm-hmm. it'll make it easier for them to, sh- like, I know they need to open up. Right. So I'm going to go first.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, th- I, I that's. I think that's typical for people like us who intuit when someone else needs a safe place or safe space to talk.
1: And what's weird is what I have found. I think you're right. Like, like sometimes I do it when I think the other person has something to share about. Um, and you have to do it under some control. Like, it's I I, I, I like my phrase is like it's intentional self disclosure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, like oh, like yeah.
1: I'm not gonna like I'm not gonna tell that. 18 year old college kid (laughs) about like the deepest problems in the sexual life of my marriage like that's not appropriate right but I am going to share some I'm going to share some vulnerability right I'm going to make myself vulnerable to him I'm going to tell him something embarrassing or tell him something difficult about my own life
0: yeah
1: because I'm trying to open him up Mm -hmm. or her up Mm -hmm. to, to talking to me about what might be in their heart and I guess, like, to me, I feel like that's, if there's any like, if I was going to train, like, the, the larger hope squad of humanity, yeah. I just go, like, I think we just need to get better at talking about our problems, sometimes not out of our need, but because we think the other person might have something, like, and so, in a sense, to share something mm-hmm. just to, like, make yourself vulnerable,
0: Yeah, no, I think yeah. I mean, we kind of talked about Brené Brown's work at you know a couple weeks ago. Oh yeah, yeah, that daring greatly stuff. We've got to yeah, we've got to um, set that. That's undoing the culture of shame is is being intentionally vulnerable to me. When we're out there, um, you know, when we've changed from we we need to emotionally express to it's just part of normal everyday life. Yeah then we are we we are healing ourselves. I mean, we're almost there. <laughs> I mean, that's just such a dream of mine, you know. And I love what you said about this sort of larger hope squad of the of the community. I'm not sure how you phrased yeah. it, but that's that's my that's my vision. And that's what I will die trying to do is just trying to engage all community members in some healthy emotional practice.
1: I think this is great. Yeah. I mean I appreciate your talking. Um
0: I appreciate and,
1: and 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 I appreciate you training a bunch of kids to be hope squatters, mm-hmm. and hopefully we're training the world to be hope squatters. Yeah. Um, I don't know yet. Like, if somebody's listening, to, somebody's going to listen to this podcast, and they're going to be like, "You don't understand." Like, I'm the other person. Yeah. I'm the guy sitting on the bench.
0: Yeah.
1: And nobody's coming.
0: Yeah.
1: And the question is, if you're the person sitting, sitting on, the, on bench the bench and nobody's coming, yeah what do we have to say? And like, I'm not going to try to take that on right right now. Right. But I feel like that's the other, I mean, that's the other thing we have to train people to do. And it's not like, you know, that's like, like teaching your kid, like, look, what do you do when your heart gets hurt?
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. What do you do when you feel like you are completely alone? Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I don't know if, I mean, do you feel like, I mean, that's got to be touching your work. Like, what do you do?
0: It, it's, it is. I mean, it, it, based on kind of what their loneliness means to them or yeah. the ideology of their loneliness. But, you know, if someone feels truly alone in the world and they don't want to be alone, yeah. you know, then um, as a community, we, we've, we've, got, we've got to raise our, our radars and we've really got to be watchful
1: but we also, like, we have to teach a person.
0: We have to teach a person what how to, to do yeah, and when think, you're all again, alone. That, yeah, I think that just starts from a place of, you know, n- that it's okay to be alone sometimes. But it's it's this threshold of loneliness when loneliness tips over into despair. What do we do? So it's about right. Like it's okay to we, be alone. It's okay to be alone, and it's okay to even feel lonely, sad, and to be sad. Yeah, I think and sad. It's I, those are all on the spectrum of, of usual human emotions. But it's when it's when we stop functioning, or when our functioning changes, yeah. or when loneliness tips over into uh, despair, or thoughts that life isn't worth living because it's taken on this other meaning. You know that um you know and, and 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 people's brains play tricks on them and that may be a whole nother you know yeah
1: i kind of I, what I, I you know you know how, like you get set on fire like if you find if your clothes are on fire what do you do
0: i roll around on the floor you
1: drop stop, <laughs> stop. and roll like yep. that's what they teach you when you're a little kid stop dropping, stop drop and roll. and roll yeah that's right stop drop and roll that's right and like that's in my mind it's in a lot of people's mind
0: yeah yeah, it does, it's disaster preparedness or emergency preparedness. And so if someone's loneliness tips over into despair, are they prepared? What are, What do you do? What do they do? And, yes. and and I
1: don't know that we've got drop, stop, and roll or stop, drop, and roll. Yeah. I don't know that we've got but that, that that's, for people. That's,
0: that's exactly what I'm talking about with this whole preparing people for yeah. emotional injury and emotional pain. It's it's precisely that. And I don't know if you know who Guy Winch is. I don't. Um, he is a, uh, a, a psychologist and I think he lives in New York now, but he used to be over, I want to say in the Netherlands. <laughs> but uh, he has several books and they're very, very good for um, working with people who suffer from a variety of uh, emotional pain and emotional injury. So where I talk about this sort of spectrum as community members, how we address this issue, yeah. he talks about it in that sort of therapeutic sense, where a clinical sense, where if, you, if someone has rejected you, here are some really fantastic things that i would do, do with you or for yeah exactly that i would teach you to do yeah, yeah. in those moments and that, so that, that's that's
1: yeah. and, and like i'm going to think on this and and you think on this cuz like what i'm what i'm realizing is is that i see a lot of people that when they're in that moment of pain mm-hmm. they reach out to the wrong people
0: the, yes, and that happens with teenagers a lot. They reach out to people who are similarly in pain, and then they are right. Um, yes, they. reach
1: out to people that are, that are similar in pain that will validate, validate their, pain, their pain, but that won't show them a way out of That's it.
0: That's absolutely right. That is abs. That is that is absolutely right. And then
1: I see sometimes in adults they turn to people who will exploit their pain. Yes. And you and, and use it to get them to do things that they shouldn't do. Yeah. Yeah. And so. I feel like you know I was talking to somebody about like we need a course on followership because like we have all these leadership courses but like how do you find somebody who's worth yeah working for or who's worth yeah. you know oh, following that's interesting. Yeah. but I think in this case it's sort of like we we're having a lot of like reach you know like be be a good reacher outer yeah but I feel like 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 be be good at reaching out to people that are in need but I feel like we need to almost have a course where we go like when you're in need mm-hmm here's what to watch out for yeah, and, yeah. and here's what to look for. Yeah. Like, so, you know, mm-hmm. um, so that, yeah, that's, that's next level stuff. <laughs> um, but thanks, thanks for this conversation. Yeah. Thank you. All right. So that's me and Jennifer Wright Berryman. If you want to know more about her, she has a great website full of resources called JenniferWrightBerryman.com. I highly recommend it. And Hope Squad has a, uh, that national program that has a, a, a website to hope com, and we'll have links for that on bartcampolo.org, which is my website where you can write to me or contact me or find out about all the stuff that I'm into. Um, yeah, so, so that there, that's all the stuff you need to know. You know, it, it's funny after this podcast was over, after we got done the conversation, Jennifer and I were chatting afterwards and she started saying something really profound. And I was like, stop. And I turned on the microphone and i I recorded her for another fifteen minutes, saying what I thought was one of the coolest things in the interview and so I'm going to tack that on the end instead of an Ingersoll quote. There's more of that conversation, but like don't worry, if you're sick of me by now, like it'll sit there in perpetuity if you ever want to get back to it. um yeah, that's it, except there's this song I want to share with you that I thought about all through that conversation, and i and as soon as it, as soon as she left i I, I looked it up on YouTube and I listened to it. It's the old REM song called Everybody Hurts. And um, it's, it's one of the most evocative songs and one of the most compassionate songs and self-compassionate songs that I've ever heard. It's, 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 it's funny. It's a, it's a song to play when you're sad or that I think says it's okay to be sad. And that, that offers hope in the midst of sadness. And so anyway, I don't know if I'll be able to get, um, if I'll be able to get Adam or, or John to actually stick it in the podcast or if like we would be in danger of lawsuit. I can't imagine. Um, but if, if, if it, it, so it'll either come up now and you can listen to it or you should look it up and listen to it yourself. And, uh, and that's it. I, I, yeah, I'll catch you next time. I'll catch you on the other side with another we'll do something really fun on the next episode something good um in the meantime just uh i was glad as i said at the beginning i'm glad you're here and i'm still glad you're here and i'll see you later all right if you hang on for that last the conversation if you want that on the other side of the song bye like you were just saying, like, yeah. the thing we didn't get to was...
0: Oh, the thing we didn't get to was that I believe that, you know, I, I, I want to teach people how to engage their emotional pain. So all the things that are... I, I want to teach people how to prepare for emotional injuries, but also identify them when they happen, engage emotional pain when we have it, and to, that then leads to managing it. Because if we do these things, then emotional pain won't fester to the point of despair and excruciating mental states we're in this constant state of managing those things right so if we diffuse the pain as it starts to come right and we get really good at that then we may never find ourselves having suicidal thoughts or we let them pass through and we release sounds them.
1: almost like mindfulness like where they say like yeah which
0: you said you weren't really a big fan of no all no that no you I'm, used I'm learning use, i know okay, i'm i'm right. learning and one
1: of the best things i learned about mind from mindfulness is mm-hmm. that guys like this thought will come into your head. Yes. The thought is not you.
0: That's right.
1: Like watch it, it changes, observe that's right. it. That's right. And then that's like right. let it go. That's right. When, and That's right. And when, it sounds like that's what you're saying.
0: When we engage our emotional pain, it changes our relationship with it. And it doesn't become who we are. It just becomes a part of what we're experiencing. A thing that's happening to us. A thing us. that's happening to us. And it creates a space for healing. When you do not engage your emotional pain, it starts to manage you instead of you managing it.
1: So when you engage it, in a sense, you're separating. You're like, I'm over here engaging this thing that's over there. That's right. That's my pain.
0: That's right. But
1: that's not me.
0: That's right. And and That really does
1: sound like that mindfulness
0: stuff. It is. It is a mindfulness. It is an aspect of mindfulness because... You know, and and the other thing about mindfulness is that you can also add a visual component to it, right? You oh my gosh,
1: work. yeah. It's like mindfulness as pain management, which but, is yeah. a lot of people, like they're it, teaching it in hospices. Yeah, definitely, and, yeah.
0: definitely. And they're they doing more of it in the military oh now, my gosh. which is wonderful. Did yeah. you
1: hear, Yeah, do you ever listen to an, a podcast called On Being?
0: Oh, that's Krista Tippett, of okay. course. Did
1: you hear yeah. her talk to that, he wasn't, what, what, he was some off religion um Hospice guy.
0: Oh, that sounds really familiar. That's pop. I, I do believe I he, heard this that guy one. who'd
1: started these like holistic hospices.
0: Yes, I, I, that's, it, I think it oh was a while back. And he, but ta- I, yeah. he talked
1: about like when being in this unmanageable pain. Yes, and like, yes, it yes, it was real. I, I will, well, that's a powerful, I will, gosh, gonna, I, 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 yeah, yeah no, I'll find it, you? I'll find <laughs> it and put it up there. But like, that's what you're talking about. It's like, you feel like it's not just like reach out to other people and dump your pain on other people. You got to right. teach, we got to teach each other how to yeah. process pain.
0: Well, and we engage each other in, in that process. You know, again, it's that companion on a journey. When I'm in pain, if I ignore it, I'm not inviting anyone into even, I'm not changing my relationship. It's going to get worse. I'm not inviting anyone into my journey of healing. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, like if I really hurt myself physically. And I can't walk. I, there was a friend of mine when I, used, when I used to work at the mental health center. She stepped off of a curb the wrong way, but it was after hours. And, like, nobody was there. And this was before cell phones. <laughs> and she broke her leg in, like, two places. It was a horrible thing. She was all alone. She had to crawl to a phone yeah. and get help. You know, and I think to myself, emotionally, people are just, like, crawling around the planet. And they're not accessing each other. And we don't have to do that.
1: Right. And I'm with you on the accessing each other. Yeah. Like that's what we talked about at the end of that podcast. It's like how do we learn to access people when we're in pain? Yeah. But the other part of engaging pain is this like engaging it yourself. Like yeah admitting to yourself you have that you're to acknowledge
0: hurt. it i'm in emotional pain and i validate it i am okay yeah. i'm okay and and
1: i've been in pain before. i've been in pain before and I've, i
0: successfully managed and, it. and
1: i might be able to manage my way out of that's this right. pain this, right. this may not be forever that's right so there are there are things that like they're not about other people like i might have learned them from other people right
0: right it's and, no it's very much a, a it's just like physical pain no one can take on our physical pain for us, but they can they can be with us. But when when we tell kids stuff's gonna, like you could break your arm on the playground and that's gonna smart. That's gonna be really painful, right? And I wish I could take it from you. When we see our children hurting, we want to take it for them, right. but we can't. So what do we do? We try to talk, we breathe, right. We teach women how to breathe well, through we are, we, giving birth, right. And
1: we say, put ice on it, put ice or,
0: on it, or heat on it. We do this thing. My my son just rolled his ankle in basketball a couple of weeks ago. I couldn't take his pain, but I certainly helped him with the elevated. That's right. You know, we don't do that with each other with. And part of it pain. is teaching
1: each other, but then the other, th- like you, you teach it to him, not just so you can be like. I will always be here to elevate your ankle and to remind you to elevate. We teach it to him so that like someday he's in an apartment by himself and he's just like you know what my mom always used to say elevate and I elevate ice and elevation. That's right. Yeah.
0: And it gives us these thresholds for emotional pain where we know this is how much I can do on my own. You said you're high resilient. You said that you can do, you might be able to do a lot on your own. Someone else who's got low resiliency yeah. or what I would call a low emotional pain immune system, right? Their threshold may be different. They may need to reach out at a different level than you okay, would.
1: So, so best book, <laughs> like if I'm somebody who has traditionally been hurt Oh gosh! And I haven't managed it well. Yeah. And somebody's going to give me a book on like, here's how to ma- like here like like if you break your ankle, here's yeah. a book on like how to manage ankle pain. Right. Here's I, a book on how to manage emotional pain.
0: That's definitely Guy Winch's book. It's which one? Um, it, he's got two. How to it's emotional first aid is is probably that is probably sounds the, perfect. It's it is, and then how to heal a broken heart's more for like those emotional relationship for other oriented, people. Yeah. So, yes, so Emotional, emotional first, aid first Aid is a fantastic book for exactly what you're describing, in W-I-N-C-H. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get the link and I'll okay. put it up. Yeah. Put it up. Yeah. Okay, Amazon. all right,
1: all right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, all right, now we're done. Okay, now
0: we're done. For more information about the work of Bart Campolo, please visit barcampolo.org.